part, the second of this morning's sermon on 1 Corinthians 15, 4b. We are asking the question and answering, trying to answer it, where does the Old Testament teach and how does the Old Testament teach the third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God? That's what Paul's assertion claims, that the... He would be raised on the third day according to the scriptures, plural. Paul's claim is not a novel claim. Paul, Paul's claim, Paul's assertion was received from somebody else, I think, traditioned on to him, either from the Lord himself or through the Lord's other apostles. Um, and then he had preached all this stuff to the Corinthians. You remember that? So he's just rehearsing or repeating something he's already said, and he's not making it up. He got it from he got it from Jesus, we'll say. Because when you go to Jesus and you ask him the question, where is this third day resurrection according to the scriptures? Or if you ask the question, did Jesus teach that? And the answer is yes. We saw it in a few places in the gospel. And then we tried to drill down a little deeper and say, well, not only, we know that the Old Testament teaches the third day resurrection of our Savior. How do we know that? God tells us. Where does God tell us? 1 Corinthians 15 and the gospel accounts. John 2, Matthew 12, other places. So we know that it does. Where does it do that? And how does it do that? That was our next question. Then I said, well, let's, maybe we can go to Jesus. Maybe he can help us. Uh, and the answer to that question is, can Jesus help us with understanding what scriptures, plural, in the Old Testament predict somehow, some way, the third day resurrection of our Lord? If we ask that question of Jesus, he would tell us uh, to go read the Gospel of Matthew. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, he makes the connection between his own third day resurrection with the prophet Jonah. So we, we looked at that. That, the Old Testament teaches the third day resurrection. The New Testament teaches us that. And where, first place, Jonah. How do we know that? Jesus told us. But if we analyze Jonah, we, and especially verse 17 of chapter 1, but put it in its context, read the whole thing, and we start asking questions. How does Jonah predict the third day resurrection of our Lord? Is it a straight prophecy? Do you read in Jonah, hey, when the Messiah comes, he'll be raised from the dead on the third day? Nope. It's not a straight prophecy. It's not straight prediction and word-for-word prediction. Correct? Correct. But Jesus says, hey, my third day resurrection is somehow, way connected to Jonah. And you know how Jesus does this? He does this not only with Jonah, he does it with other figures of the Old Testament. Just as, so then. Okay, when that's happening, you've heard it, heard it, heard it. You've heard it many times for me, just as, so also. Just as Adam was a public person who represented others, so also the last Adam Christ is a, repre- is a representative, a public person who represents others. Just as, so also. You, you know where I get that language from. I wish I could say I got it straight from the Bible. It does come from the Bible, but I got it from reading others about the Bible, who got it from the Bible themselves. Just as, so also. Just as Jonah, so also. That's in Jesus' language. 
But it's not straight predictive prophecy, right? It's not this event that I'm going to tell you about is going to happen in the future. On the third day, after his death, the incarnate Son of God is going to be raised from the dead. Instead, what we have is we have this experience that Jonah goes through. This rebel prophet who gets thrown into a large fish's mouth. Doesn't say whale. He's got a Hebrew text there. Does it say whale? Um, is in this stomach, belly, underwater for three days, and then he comes out. So we have an event that a prophet experiences that Jesus connects himself to. But the way Jesus does it is just as historical person experiencing events, when he says, so also, or whatever, however he says it, he's doing this to Jonah's event. Actually, he's doing this. I'm connected to it, but, but something greater than Jonah's here. Escalation, you ever heard that before? And the fulfillment of the type is actually the type escalated. Something greater than Jonah is here. So that the Old Testament teaches the third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God. Various places in the New Testament, we know it. Specifically, Jesus connects some experiences of the prophet Jonah with his own experience. How the Old Testament, or where it does, Jonah 1, how does it do it? Typology. Not predictive prophecy in this case. There's a lot of predictive prophecy, right, about the Son of God incarnate. But Jonah's experience isn't predictive prophecy. It's a person, place, institution, or event designed by God to somehow prefigure or point to a greater person, place, institution, or event in the future, namely Christ. That's what the theologians call typology. So that, the Old Testament teaches the third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, very clear. Where? First place, Jonah, chapter 1. How? Typologically. Huh. So another question is, okay, Paul says scriptures plural. Are there more than one text? Is there, are there, are there more than one text? Is there more than one text in the Old Testament that indicates the third day resurrection of our Lord? It says scriptures, according to the scriptures, plural. So we should be able to find someplace else, somehow, some way. Now, we went to Jesus. He says, go read Jonah. You go to Jonah, you say, okay, that it teaches it. I get it. How? Typology. So if the Old Testament could teach the third-day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, typologically in one text, here's my next question, could it do it in another text? I mean, it could. The real question is, does it? And the real answer is, well, of course, or else your sermon would be 10 minutes long, and you never do 10-minute long sermons. I have done a 19-minute long sermon before. I did that once. Gordon goes, can you bring those back? 
Maybe more visitors will come and stay. Uh, so, here, so you see what we're doing with? When we asked Jesus the question, does the Old Testament teach a third-day resurrection? Of course. That's the tradition Paul received. We asked Jesus the question, can you help us find out at least one text? He said, yeah, go to Jonah. And then when we read it, we know that the Old Testament does. How is through prefigurement, typology, whatever, however you want to say it. Not predictive prophecy there. So the next question is, well, if the Old Testament did it once, could it do it twice? Could there be another figure, another person, who experiences things uh, just as that one experienced that so also on a greater level the incarnate son of god experienced much this, this similar things but on a much grander level with more at stake and the answer to that question is yes uh, there are we we can find texts that do that i'm not going to go to uh, one in the prophets i think there is one in the prophets besides jonah that does that I can tell you about it later. I am going to go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 is where you should uh, open your Bibles to, because I will work finally work through a text of Scripture. Everything else is just helping you learn how to interpret Scripture. Now we're going to read it, and, and I think you're going to go, well, of course, of course. Get to the point. The point is, uh, find Jesus in the Old Testament. I think Genesis 22 is one of the places you can do it. So, so what we're saying is this, at least in the case of Jonah, the Old Testament tells us the incarnate Son of God is going to be raised on the third day through a type, Jonah as a type. Are there other types that do the same? So type, typology. Here's a contemporary definition of it. From the Greek word for form or pattern, which in biblical times denoted both the original model or prototype or the copy that resulted. The author gives us an example, uh, Adam and Christ. He says further, there are several categories, persons, Adam, Melchizedek, Adam and Melchizedek are types, events, flood, brazen serpent, institution, feasts, places, Jerusalem, Zion, objects, altar of, or, or of burnt offerings and incense, offices, prophets, priests, priests and kings. Offices, prophets, priests and kings, typologically portray the great prophet, priest, and king. By the way, who's the first prophet, priest, and king? Sean got it. Adam. So this same author who I just quoted argues that there are patterns in Scripture of God revealing events, institutions, places, objects, and our offices as things which prefigure future things. It's weird for us to think this way, but even the narrative history, historical sections of ancient Israel can be actually eschatological or prepare us for something greater in the future. You read the prophets, they look back at the Exodus as a massive saving act of God. But the prophets don't just look back. They use Exodus language to say, you think that was great. Wait till, he, wait till he does the fulfillment of that in the future. Second Exodus language in the prophets. So this guy is saying that's how God reveals. God acts. God records, records his acts through penmen and sometimes interprets the acts. 
uh, for us, and other times uh, in the initial text, and other times we await future texts to interpret the initial act for us, drawing out of the initial act of God that which is implicit in it, but now explicitly. Just as Jonah, so therefore me. Events, persons, places, institution. Um, so this, this typology is very clear with, with Adam and Christ, friends. That's the one, I mean, Paul states it. Adam, who is the type of him who has to come. But something is interesting in the relationship between the first and last Adam. The last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, is better than the first Adam, right? He is like and unlike him. So we could say types are lesser than that to which they point. Types are down here on the meaning level. Antitypes, that to which these things point, are way up here. And we have to keep this in mind as we look at Genesis 22. I suggest to you that, that this passage from the Old Testament prefigures aspects of our Lord's experience and is related to his third day resurrection. In the words of John Gill, the deliverance of Isaac when his father received him in a figure as from the dead. Now, Gill is paraphrasing Hebrews 11. Because in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants, seed, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That's Hebrews 11. So I think we're on good ground, right? We're not, I'm not just saying, hey, jump off into this body of water without any swimming apparatus or anything under your feet. I'm saying, no, we got something solid under our feet. We got God telling us in Hebrews 11, hey, there's something important about that back there, that Genesis 2, think, 22 passage. Keep your eyes on it. Going back from Gill to Cyril of Alexandria, around 400 AD, he says this, The mystery regarding our Savior is prefigured through these matters. Genesis 22. Hmm, there's an old, really old dude saying it. Now, here's Genesis 22, 1 through 14. <clears throat> what, I, <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it an interpretive read, not an interpretive dance. <clears throat> we don't do that here. Uh, a theological, theologically interpretive read of Genesis 22, using John Gill. Some of you have heard this before. Okay, so I'm going to read a portion of the text, then insert some of Gill's words. Some of them might be mine. I'm not sure. You can follow along in your English text. I, I, I hope it's helpful. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Here's Gil, the hill country of the land of Canaan, particularly that part of it where Jerusalem afterwards stood. Places, person, places, events, institutions. Here's a place and a person. Moriah, by the way, these mountains, this is a mountain, 
He's offering sacrifice on a mountain. Jerusalem was on a mountain, the first special dwelling place of God among men on the earth. The temple or garden temple, Eden, was on a mountain. The hill country of the land of Canaan, particularly that part of where Jerusalem afterwards stood. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Mountains. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, John 12, and took two of his young men with him, John 12, Zechariah 9, is it? Or Zechariah 13 or something? Two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the... uh (laughs) Uh-oh. On the third day. That's pretty convenient. Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Here's Gil. The Jews take great notice of this third day and compare the passage with Hosea 6.2. Okay, on the third day occurs at least twice in the Old Testament. That phrase. One is here in Genesis 22. The other one is Hosea 6. Read Calvin and Gil and, and the old guys on that and you'll go, oh, I never saw that. Or else, yeah, the pastor told us that four years ago. But anyway, the Jews take notice of this third day and compare the passage with Hosea 6, 2, which is a third day resurrection of the nation passage. And which they interpret of the third day of the resurrection. And the deliverance of Isaac on this third day was doubtless typical of Christ's resurrection from the dead on the third day. From time to time that Abraham had the command To offer up his son, he was reckoned no other by him than one dead, from whence he received him in a figure on this third day. Then he cites Hebrews 11, 19. Verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Here's Gil again. Who was a grown man and able to carry it. In this also he was a type of Christ on whom the wood of his cross was laid. Just a suggestion. Keep going. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Here's John Gill. In which answer, Abraham may have respect to the Messiah, the Lamb of God. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar, altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Here's Gil. In which he also was a type of Christ who acquiesced in the will of his father. Verse 10, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife and to slay his son. But the angel, the Lord, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. There's a lot of here I am's here, huh? 
Trace that statement out. It's elsewhere in the Bible. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Here's Gil. Abraham loved the Lord more than he loved his son. And had a greater regard to the command of God than to the life of his son. And preferred the one to the other. And thus God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Here's Gil. This ram was in an extraordinary manner provided and was a type of our Lord Jesus who came into the world in an uncommon way, being born of a virgin. The ram was a type of Christ. Verse 14, and Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Here's Gil, Jehovah Jireh. As he has provided a ram in the room of Isaac, so he has provided and will send his only son in the fullness of time to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Here's Gil. Some choose to render the words, in the mount the Lord shall be seen. Let me say that again. Some choose to render the words, in the mount, the Lord shall be seen. God manifest in the flesh, the Emmanuel, God with us, who was frequently in the temple, built on this mount, and often seen there in a state of humiliation on earth. These guys had no control. Actually, I think they did. Listen to some other comments by older commentators on various verses in this passage. Commenting on verse 4, on the third day, here's Matthew Poole, so that it might be a type of Christ, the number three is most celebrated in the scripture. And concerning this, thus the rabbis in Bereshit Rabbah, an ancient Jewish commentary on Genesis, here's what they say. There are many three days in the scripture, among which one is the day of the resurrection of Messiah. Guess who he's quoting? Andrew knows. Ainsworth. Ainsworth is actually quoting a Jew. Here's John Trapp on verse 6. And laid it upon, uh, uh, upon Isaac his son, who was herein a lively type of Christ, bearing the cross whereon he was offered up. Here's a man named Rivet, or Rivet, R-I-V-E-T. On Genesis 22.8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And Christ is called a lamb. Here's Poole again on Genesis 22.8. In these things also Isaac was a type of Christ. One, that he was offered on Mount Moriah, understood by ancient Jews and Christians as what we call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Two, that it was on the third day. Three, that he first bore wood, he first bore the wood, then the wood bore him. Four, that he was bound with respect to his hands and feet. That's Lightfoot. This is, I mean, you know, I'm in my study mining this stuff out. My wife's probably going, keep it down in there. Because the things you kind of have a gut feeling about when you read Hebrews and go, oh, yeah, Genesis 22, I read that last week. There was some weird stuff there. And then when you read Hebrews and they make the connection, you feel a little stronger about making those connections. The old guys just made them. Why? They didn't make them up. They made them because they're there. I think more than we're comfortable with. 
I remember students asking me, so where, what's the control for typology? I said, I haven't found it yet. Because I think there's more typology going on that we're probably going to feel comfortable with. Here are some of my conclusions to help us with the supper. One, many places in the New Testament were assured that our Lord rose from the dead on the third day. He died, he was buried, he rose. Without it, we're goners. With it, hallelujah, you know, we're not goners. Second, Paul, Jesus, and other New New Testament persons assert that the third day resurrection of our Lord was promised, or at least contained in the Old Testament in some form. They didn't tell us the form. Third, when we go to the Old Testament, helping Jesus, uh, allowing Jesus to be our guide, we find that the third day resurrection of our Lord is found couched in what we call typology. I've offered Isaac and Jonah. I didn't offer the nation Israel, but I, I could have. Hosea 6 too. Look it up later. All this teaches us at least three things. First, what the Old Testament promised concerning the Savior of sinners, our Lord fulfills. What the Old Testament was doing this with this drum roll and this slow but sure, almost crescendo and slamming of symbols. It didn't happen in the Old Testament. It almost happened. Well, didn't even almost happen. Didn't happen. But they said it was going to happen. It happened. But not within the Old Testament times. It happened in the fullness of time when God sent forth the Son. Various aspects of the experiences of Isaac, Genesis 22, I think Israel, Hosea 6, didn't cover that, and Jonah, Jonah 1, typify our Lord's third day resurrection. Those things typologically tell us not everything about Jesus, but they're beginning to build a case in the Old Testament. So once Jesus comes, we're going, oh, when the fulfillment comes, That which promised it becomes clearer. Isn't that what happened? This is that. Well, Peter couldn't have said it before all this happened. But after it happened, Peter goes, this, what we're now experiencing, is exactly what the Moses and the prophet said was going to take place. So various aspects of the experiences of Isaac, Israel, and Jonah typify our Lord's third day resurrection. And one thing we learn from this is that many things function typologically without the Bible explicitly identifying them as types. Does the Bible have to say X is a type in order for it to be a type? Nope. Well, are you a hypertyperist? <laughs> yeah, with controls, though. What's the book, Jess? And Grace read it? 40 questions on... Typology and allegory, read that book. It's a good book. And since the experiences of Isaac and Jonah, which typify our Lord, predate the recording of those experiences. You ever thought of that? Jonah's experience predates the recording of the experience. Isaac's experience predates the recording of it, right? Since the experiences which typify our Lord predate the recording of those experiences, this confirms, I think, that types are constituted by God via providence and appointment, not merely identified in the written word, and then made types. So here's what I get at. Was Adam a type of Christ before Paul wrote Romans 5.14? The only place where Adam is called a type, with that language, 
is Romans 5.14. But everybody that heard me that's not sleeping is not in their head. Yeah, he was a type before they wrote about it. So a type is a type, not by virtue necessarily of the scriptures identifying the type as a type. A type is a type by divine providential appointment. By the way, this is what messed up scripture interpretation after the, after the, in the 17th, toward the end of the 17th, and all the way through the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century. Here's what happened. People said, the Bible's a book. The Bible, therefore, is to be interpreted like any other book. Foul, I want to call foul. Throw a penalty flag, blow the whistle. Go back to kindergarten. The Bible is not like any other book. There's no other book like it. It's the written word of God. And so they cut God off from the Bible. And they say, well, whatever they use over there in terms of hermeneutical interpretive principles, we use them over here. So we're going to borrow one-to-one relationship, book, book, interpretation, interpretation. Well, they forget. There's a divine agent involved here that brought the book into existence. And then prior to the book coming into existence, having already created, did things in space and time and history providentially that are then written about and explained later. You can't take God out of the equation. Add to that, we're sinners. We can't understand the Bible right without some grace and help from heaven. But they cut God out of the equation. The Bible's just a book. It has a text. You can get it, it, into its background, and you can, anybody. It's, it's science. It's science. Just a scientific project. Okay? It's like, what? No, the pre-critical guys, they, they go, no. If I don't have God's help to help me understand God's word, I'm doomed. So God makes types types by virtue of divine action. Now, he didn't say it. Abraham and Isaac, you guys, are gonna, I'm going to use you. All right? Isaac, you're going to be a type of him who has to come. Actually, we don't know how much they knew about it, right? People, oh, the first guys know about it. I don't know. They're dead. I don't care what they knew or didn't know. I do in one sense. I care what the Bible teaches us and what it means. That's what's important, right? Not trying to get into people's... Heads. Oh, Paul must, was thinking this at the time. Don't, you don't know what Paul was thinking. You just have his text. If Paul could tell, tell us, I think he'd yell from heaven and say, quit trying to get in my brain. I'm happy where I am. <laughs> Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Read the text. Okay, that's the sword of the Spirit. The text, not the things in, that you think might or might not have been in my head. Okay. See, I, this, this comes from lecture. So I, this is lecture material. It's coming out in the sermon. Sorry. But you don't have to pay extra for this. I'm just giving it for free, and hopefully it's helpful. The New Testament is God's record of and commentary concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and his sufferings and glory as those acts relate to what the Old Testament predicted concerning him, right? That's a long sentence. Okay, grace went like that, so that's good. Oh, you were nodding off, sorry. Here, let me say it again. The New Testament is God's record of and commentary. It's not just a narration. The New Testament narrates. The New Testament also comments. 
it is God's record of and commentary concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and his sufferings and glory as those acts, sufferings and glory, relate to what the Old Testament predicted concerning him. So, so again, the New Testament says, the Old Testament said this was going to happen. Jesus came, it's happened. We're telling you about it. And last, if you know yourself as a sinner, one who has violated God's holy law, one who does things God forbids and does not do things God requires. Your only hope is the mercy of God revealed to us in Christ for our sins according to the scriptures, plural, of both the Old and New Testament. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace to help us understand these things. Again, blow out of our heads and memories anything wrong and false and not accurate, not an accurate representation of the intention of God uh, through in the text of Scripture, but also bless anything that was in line with it. And may we make much of Christ. We don't make enough of Christ. We're mute. We have so much uh, blessing from him, and yet we're often mute, buttoned lips, and don't speak when we ought. Please forgive us and help us to be better um, gospel speakers and uh, help us as well in our weakness. We're going to eat food, uh, eat bread, drink wine to your glory for our good, but we need it blessed. We need the benefits of Christ to come to the people of Christ by the Spirit of Christ, blessing the means of Christ. Do that. We acknowledge our weakness and need. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.